0: Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I am here with our guest, uh, Benjamin T. Backus, PhD. Um, ben is the CSO of a company, a very interesting company called Vivid Vision. Ben, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Sean. Hi. So
0: I thought that we could start off with uh, just explaining what vision, Vivid Vision, that's a bit of a tongue twister sometimes. Vivid Vision is, uh, I'm well aware, but maybe just to give the audience introduction to what Vivid Vision is. Uh,
1: yeah, Vivid Vision, it's, it's both a um, company name and the name of our first product. And um, what the product is, is a platform for remote and, um, and in-office vision care but it really got its start as a uh, treatment. The first module on the platform is a treatment for binocular vision disorders like amblyopia or lazy eye and convergence insufficiency, lack of stereo depth perception, um, strabismus or eye turn. And um, the the product is now in use in 400 or more clinics. And um, we're soon going to be releasing Vivid Vision Perimetry, which is a, visual field test um, that meets uh, an unmet need for at-home visual field testing. And um, something which which we're calling Spartacist, which helps a uh, doctor give better vision treatment, especially remotely. remotely. And uh, most of our vision tests and treatments use virtual reality headsets, but we also partner with other companies and distribute um, software that does not use VR. Okay.
0: No. So let me, let me just uh, try and walk through this a little bit. So um, that I fully understand and, and the audience will understand. So you have these, so the core product is this headset with uh, virtual reality built in. Is that what it is?
1: Well, yes, but in fact, our, all we make is the software. So we okay. keep the product inexpensive by using off the shelf consumer grade hardware. Um, so, we run on a lot of platforms like um, Oculus headsets and um, DPVR and Pico and HTC. We just have a partnership with HTC. Um, they make the HTC Vive, and uh, so it's we we don't make our own hardware, but we make software for hardware platforms. Okay,
0: that makes sense. So um, it's now this early versions of what you were doing started. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but was really geared at uh, a therapy for amblyopia or strabismus. Is that correct?
1: Yes, very much so. And um, that's still one of our main focuses. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how the company got started. Our CEO, uh, James Blaha, he saw a TED Talk by a woman named Susan Berry. And uh, she's, she was um, called Stereo Sue, by Oliver Sacks in a New Yorker article. And she's published several books now on vision and um, vision therapy, how people learn to see. And James saw her talk that she had given herself stereo as an adult by doing vision therapy with a professional vision therapist. And he thought, you know, I, I could do this same treatment for myself in virtual reality. And so he wrote himself a code, uh, coded up a program. He's a gamer and a, and a programmer. And, uh, he, he gave himself stereopsis for the first time in his life that he could remember by, um, manipulating the images to the left and the right eyes. And he thought, aha, I've got to bring this to other people. So that's where it came from. So,
0: okay. So walk me through that a little bit. So how does this work? So if I have, uh, you know, or there's, let's say there's a kid who, who has amblyopia. So maybe you can just start by just telling us what amblyopia and stereopsis are, but then what? Um, you know, if somebody came to you and said, you know, hey, Ben, I, I, you know, my child has this issue. Um, How can you help? Maybe you just walk us through what that might look like.
1: Right. Um, Binocular vision disorders come in all flavors. And um, we should start by saying how complicated and wonderful binocular vision is. If you have good binocular vision, you probably take it for granted. But if you don't, then you may um, suppress one eye, um, meaning that the brain only listens to one eye at a time. Your eyes may uh, turn, so they don't point in the same direction. Um, or you may have, um, and that's called strabismus, or you may have amblyopia, which is, um, what the word actually means blunt vision in Greek. But amblyopia develops, the developmental disorder caused by having um, either poor vision in one eye or an eye turn when you're young. And then the brain starts ignoring one eye and never learns to see well using that eye. And then you get glasses or you get your eyes straightened surgically when you're older and your brain is already in the habit of ignoring one eye. Um, so I know how to see, I'll use, I'll use the good eye. And so it never um, relearns how to see well with that eye. Um, so that's why, why kids wear an eye patch for treatment of amblyopia. Um, And the way vivid vision approaches both of these problems, amblyopia and strabismus, as well as the related phenomena of um, convergence problems and inability to see stereoscopic depth, they kind of can occur in all combinations. Um, uh, But we tackle this by using the fact that a VR headset, virtual reality headset can display um, one image to the left eye and another image to the right eye. And what that lets you do is you can, uh, number one, put the images where the eyes happen to be pointed and uh, slowly move them back to where you want the eyes to point. That's effective in many patients. Um, you can make one of the eyes uh, have a dim input instead of turning it off completely, like happens with an eye patch. So it's kind of, I mean, an eye patch is like... Um, doing something similar to VR if you were to just completely turn off one of the eye's images. But you can do something much more sophisticated in VR, which is decrease the um, contrast or brightness in the good eye to encourage the brain to use the information from the amblyopic eye. And once you've got balanced inputs coming into the brain, you can start to retrain the binocular part of the visual system which is used to, you know, the human binocular visual system is, it has, has a long history in um, evolution and all primates have very good binocular vision. Our ancestors used it for hunting and for um, running through forests without bumping into trees and tripping on things. Um, so we actually rely heavily on binocular vision if we have it. It's, it's not so much you need binocular vision in order to Uh, make your way through the world. There there are lots of other visual depth cues and um, lots of ways to see things, but people who have binocular vision rely on it because it's a very trustworthy, reliable source of information to have uh, stereoscopic depth. And so if you wanted to recover it using vivid vision, what you would do is um, go, typically you'd start with an exam at your optometrist or ophthalmologist and um, then you would play games and do activities in the VR headset that are specially designed for whatever the weak point is in your particular visual system. And it's, um, it's different for everybody just because the binocular visual system is so complicated.
0: Oh, that, makes, that makes sense. And, you know, it's, you talk about, you know, kids having eyes that are patched, an amblyopic eye patched. Uh, which is something that's been done for decades, if not centuries now, right? And uh, I don't know if there was a whole lot between, you know, a whole lot of development in that area until, you know, the type of thing that you're doing right now with virtual reality and and the fine tuning that you can do the, um, you know, really tailoring that to the level of the patient, right? It's very almost, it pers- almost personalized medicine at that point, if that makes sense. Um, the... Uh, the games. So, I mean, are you dealing mostly with kids in these uh, scenarios? And is that why, uh, and then you t- like tailored games specifically that kids are going to enjoy and want to
1: play? Well, we've, we've um, got both, uh, our, our providers, our doctors who use the system are treating both children and adults. And, um, and we've had kids as young as four, you would want to start treatment with other therapies before age four, but typically they'll start in the vision um, age four or later. Um, most of the kids are older than that. And, um, and we have a lot of adults, including adults um, in their 60s and uh, you, you're you, never too old to improve your vision. It turns out the visual system is plastic um, all the way until death. It, people used to think that there was a critical period after which you wouldn't improve and there is a critical period after which it's very difficult to get normal vision but there is no critical period in humans for being able to improve your vision so we treat people all the way into adulthood but but a majority of the majority of the patients for the binocular vision product are um, older children that's not uh That's not true for the visual field test. That's, that's going to be mostly for older adults.
0: Okay. No, that makes sense. I'll circle back to the visual field test. We'll put a a pin in that and come back to that uh, shortly. Um, I was wondering if maybe you can just give a little bit of background on, on you uh, and, you know, how did you find yourself in this role with Vivid Vision?
1: Well, um, I actually was a tenured professor. I am I have, I've been a research scientist and professor and lecturer at uh, university for 17 years. Um, the last 10 years was at the State University of New York College of Optometry, and that's the, that's the only college of optometry in the, in the state of New York, and it's located in Manhattan. And um, yeah, I had a beautiful office on the 14th floor looking out over Bryant Park, and um, it was a great job, and uh, I, I really liked it a lot. But one of the things that happened in my research is I I saw um, for the first time a way to apply the scientific results. It was all what we call basic science, research on how the normal visual system works. I saw a way to apply it to people who um, needed to recover visual function. And um, there were two things going on in my research areas. I've been studying binocular vision, and it's really my expertise is binocular vision uh, and, and visual psychophysics. Um, and then I, in the last 10 years, I've added a lot of work on perceptual learning, changes that happen in the visual system. And I was studying those in normally sighted people because even normally sighted people, they're, they're always learning, their visual system is always changing and adapting based on the things they see and optimizing itself so that you'll see better um, in the in the upcoming future. You're always using the data both to see and to improve your vision. And I, I showed how that works uh, in my lab and thought, you know, this isn't just academic. This could really be useful. And that led me to a um, search. Well, led me to two things. First, it, it led me to a patent application that the university um, did for treating strabismus using some ideas that um, had that I had first put into a grant application. We got that patent approved, but it also led to um, a thought that there ought to be um, somebody doing this. And that's what led me to James and um, his partner, Manish, who had founded this new company, Vivid Vision. And just an internet search, it was sort of doing due diligence. I don't think I'd be that great a CEO myself. Um, and so I was really happy to find a team that was working on this already, um, Manish Gupta and, and James Blaha. And they uh, had also just recently brought in a very good optometrist, um, Tuan Tran. And so I, I talked with them and became their science advisor. And then in, I guess it was 2016 or 2017, I had a sabbatical from the university and I came out to UC Berkeley for my sabbatical. They were in San Francisco. So half of the year, I worked for them, and that's where um, I, I just really enjoyed it. I, I really liked them. I would have been thrilled to have uh, James and Manish in my own lab as postdocs, even though they don't have um, that kind of formal training, But I and I just really enjoyed it, and um, so we talked a little bit, and I I made the jump. I said, okay, let's try something new, and I pulled up stakes and moved to the Bay Area, and I haven't regretted it. Yeah, that's a, that's
0: a big move, right? Like say you're a tenured professor and you say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, just, you know, pack up shop and go do something completely different. So that uh, it kind of takes guts. You don't see too many people doing that. I mean, pe- people will, you know, okay, there'll be advisors and, and whatnot, but, uh, that's a, uh, that's interesting. That's uh, a, <laughs> yeah, I guess you're all in, right? So <laughs> the, um, um, It takes
1: a lot of time you, to do it right, you know? And, uh... Yeah,
0: no, and that's, that's great.
1: No. It's actually it's kind of interesting. They, um, they actually thought very hard about whether to start as a nonprofit or a for-profit company. And um, everybody in the company is really interested in the mission of the company. And so, you know, we don't we've had no turnover. We've had nobody um, who ha- has left the company yet and gone on to do other things. Um, no, it's it's, it's, uh, it's uh, a all- job. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. You, okay, so you
0: mentioned psychophysics as part of your training background. Can you maybe just elaborate what psychophysics is and what it's not?
1: Yeah, psychophysics is a branch of experimental psychology that was originally developed by a guy named Gustav Fechner um, in the late 1800s. And it's the study of the psychological responses to physical stimuli. He realized that you can study how the brain works by studying what people see as you make manipulations in the visual stimuli you show to them. And so it's questions like, um, what's the dimmest thing you can see? Um, How long does a flash of light have to be on for you to see it? And um, it includes things like, what happens when you create a stereoscopic stimulus that's unnatural, where maybe the disparities are bigger or smaller or in a weird uh, direction? N- disparity is showing, is when you show slightly different things to the two eyes and, and your brain measures those differences and constructs depth. Um, so it's a study of um, color appearances and um, motion detection. It's kind of the guts of vision, the, the low level stuff that your brain does to extract signals um, from stimuli, but now it includes things like face perception as well. Okay, no, that's, that's
0: a nice uh, overview, because I'm also uh, I'm asking for the audience, but also asking for myself, because I didn't, you know, I'm a little bit familiar with it, but didn't quite know the, the boundaries of, of what it is. Um, I just maybe want to circle back to your, your team at Vivid Vision, because it must have been a a change for you you know leaving a you know research environment you have a lab you have students uh and now working alongside uh you know entrepreneurs and and professionals and clinicians uh, all kind of working on this this one goal together um how is that change for you like how does, does that work dynamic and and how does that team manage to Uh, to work together and everybody be on the same page. I don't know if I, that's probably a terrible way to word that question, but maybe you could pull something out of that.
1: Well, it is very different. And um, I have areas of expertise and skills that I've developed um, over the last 17 years. And some of them I can apply and some of them I can't. So um, I haven't done a lot of mentoring students Uh, in their research careers and um, developing new scientists since I've joined the company, which was part of my job before. But the the trade-off is um, working day-to-day in a fast-paced environment where we're building something that's going to be useful. And uh, that's very satisfying. And I wasn't getting that in the old job. So um, for me personally, there have been some um, things I miss about being a professor, but also a lot of things, more things that I like about this job right now. And, you know, maybe, maybe in a few years I'll decide to go back to academia, um, but I'm really happy where I am right now. The team, uh, it, well, we work very well remotely. We try to get together um, for retreats uh, once or twice a year. That's been hard with COVID. So, we've been doing everything, you know, like other people, we've been doing everything remotely. And because we're a software development company, uh, that has worked. And we make a point of spending time with each other. It's really not the same as being in the same place in person, but um, everybody's very professional. I think what, what really helps is we're respectful of each other's time. Nobody calls meetings just because they want. Um, to fill time and you know, it's their job to get something done. And um, so they, they just call a meeting generically. We're, we're, we work very well together that way and we'll have intensive sessions, um, two people or three people getting together and, and we keep the larger meetings fairly short. Zoom has been great, we've used that a lot um, and Slack. Those are our two biggest tools for collaborating with each other but we've got employees spread out all over the country, in fact, all over the world um, before, and that was true even before COVID. So we were all, we were already collaborating um, with um, employees in Japan, Great Britain, collaborators in Germany, Australia. Um, and we're now um, starting some collaborations in China, so, and, and other parts of Asia, so we're really an international company at this point, and that wouldn't be possible without the internet.
0: No, and, that, and that's fair. And you know, I think your point that you said about, you know, the founders of the company and the early employees debating whether to make this a nonprofit or a for-profit company, it also sp- speaks to the, um, you know, the intentions of people uh, and probably, probably some personalities, I guess um, that, you know, it's probably very, a very cohesive, uh, cohesive team. You mentioned, you know, the Internet. Um, and I think you mentioned telemedicine earlier on in the conversation, unless I've uh, misremembered that. But maybe you could comment a little bit on um, on the impact that uh, even COVID has had and just the shift toward telemedicine has had. How is that impacting your business?
1: Well, COVID really accelerated a shift to telemedicine that was happening already. Um, patients love it. Doctors like it. They can deliver care more efficiently and, and uh, patients don't waste nearly as much time if they can uh, have appointments over the internet. There's some things for which you really need to examine a person in person. Um, the patient, you, you know, you can't tell how something feels under your fingers. Um, And there's some things you just might not notice unless the person walks into the room and presents themselves. So, um, but an awful lot of medicine can be uh, delivered remotely. A lot of care can be given remotely, um, including, it turns out, eye exams and treatments. And, um, you know, some of it, some of it really has gotten pretty archaic. Um, There are a lot of manual tests that can be given more consistently in an automated framework. Some of them require a little bit of training, um, but you can create a tutorial for that. And patients want to um, collaborate in their own treatment. So so many patients like, they feel empowered by having uh, tools at their disposal for testing themselves. And many doctors have taken this approach now that the, the more information that the patient collects about themselves and the more involved they are in their own healthcare, the better the outcome. So it's no longer seen as threatening to doctors, um, whether they're optometrists or ophthalmologists. Um, they, p- people really uh, Doctors are really getting on board with this idea and, and coming to see how it empowers them to treat patients better.
0: No, that makes sense, and um, we actually had a guest on the podcast recently, Dr. Nalasami, who uh, published a paper. I believe it was uh, where they did, you know, a comparison. Um, they were working of different conditions. that did comparison uh, with telemedicine and, you know, in-person diagnoses. And at the end of the day, there was like a hundred percent concordance on the management plan. There was maybe some some slight variations in the. The diagnoses in a couple of cases, if I remember correctly, but it was like, I think it was over 200 patients and the management plans are exactly the same. So um, certainly uh, in certain branches of medicine, including eye care, there seems to be a place for that. Uh, and, and uh, it might be win-win for patients and
1: for doctors. Wow. for That's a great result. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that one. That's yeah. cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can listen to that episode, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's a really interesting, um, really interesting study. Um, you mentioned earlier on about your perimetry product. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, this, we're really excited about this. Um, this was originally going to be our beachhead. It was like, okay, if the binocular vision product fails, we'll, we will at least have a visual field test well, famous last words, it's actually very difficult to create a new test that can gain currency. It's one thing to create a research tool. It's quite another thing to create a test that is reliable enough and um, simple enough for the patient to take and for the doctors to use and robust that it's going to work. A doctor does not have time for a program that um, crashes 5% of the time, uh, it takes a long time to set up. They need to go bang, 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 and have it have it work. And they want their patients to have a good experience with them. Any any test that they give to their patient reflects on them. And if the patients don't like coming in and having their exams or don't like the things the doctor has prescribed, it reflects on the doctor. So, um, so perimetry is one of these um, things that patients have hated. It's, it's also called a visual field test. And especially if you have um, a, a condition where you might be losing your sight and you need to monitor over time whether your vision is getting worse, you've got to take these visual field tests. And um, they're, they're really not designed psychophysically from a good user interface point of view. They're not, they're not user friendly. And um, you know, just for example, you're supposed to look at the same place constantly for many minutes. You have to keep your eyes fixed on one one spot. Well, that's hard to do if you don't have good vision in the center of your vision. Like maybe you've lost vision in your fovea, which is where you have um, high acuity or high resolution, fine detail vision. Then it's hard for you to do. And the primate visual system, including humans, is designed to move your eyes around. And, And what you have to do in these tests is suppress the foveation reflex. So there's a flash of light in peripheral vision and you're supposed to not go look at it, right? You have to to keep your eyes fixed in the fixation point. That takes a while for people to learn and some of them never learn it. So this this, um, ophthalmologist, he's actually an oncologist who does retinal surgeries, um, Bertolt D'Amato, he was at UCSF getting their um, surgical oncology unit. He was leading their surgical oncology unit when I met him, but he's now back in the UK at uh, Oxford, and uh, he had this idea that you should do visual field tests in a way that less people move their eyes around during the test, and so we do that. We, it's called oculokinetic perimetry. The other thing you have to do in a visual field test is continuously maintain vigilance. You have to allocate visual attention steadily for many minutes at a time, and we now know that that's exhausting. It actually takes effort to keep your visual attention in a high state of readiness to detect things anywhere. It's, it's work, um, a real work in the in the sense of using more energy and your, your brain shows activity in um, fMRI scans and things when you're doing this work. And so we've we've made it easier on both of those accounts. We we make a test that patients don't get fatigued by, uh, it's designed for them not to get fatigued. And The result of that is they can collect a lot more data. They can spend more time in the test. They can collect a lot more data. And um, that is essential to get a good measurement. The the old tests, the traditional tests, they just don't collect enough data to give you a precise estimate of how your visual field is doing. And um, so by collecting more data, we we have patients who can easily collect 10 times as much data at home um, in, a, in a, over a period of a few days. And then you really know what is their visual field like. And uh, when you give them a test again in three months or six months, you really know, did their vision get worse or not? Instead of having to wait, that's often 18 months or two years currently to know whether a person's vision is getting worse. And it's really because the test is so short and that's because the test has to be short because it's fatiguing and uncomfortable. So we're really excited about making an easy test that will let people, you know, there's so the retina is so big and it has so many, there's a million ganglion cells on each retina that are contributing axons going into the optic nerve for each eye. And so it just, I mean, there's no way around it. It takes a long time to test vision, even to do a very crude sampling of how a person's vision is doing. You get so much information through your eyes if you have good vision. And to, to really measure how well they're doing, it just takes more time than traditional tests have been able to do. You know, plus they're in a doctor's office. You're paying a technician um, to spend the time. It's on a bulky piece of equipment that takes up space and the patient has to schedule an exam and come in. There's just no way you'd collect, you, could, you wouldn't do 10 sessions in a row in a, in a setup like that. It's just not feasible.
0: I can just tell you about my own personal experience with visual fields. And um, I hate them. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't done one in a while. Your neck gets sore. You, you stick your chin in this little chin rest in a kind of a weird position. You got to stay there and look at the head at this spot. And uh, the last time I did one was quite a number of years ago. Uh, my, my vision was, was failing then. Um, and uh, my one eye, I could, you know foveate on the, on that spot in the center of the, the dome, I guess, that I had my head in, uh, but my other eye couldn't. So mm-hmm. the, it was just the guideline is kind of like, well, I'll just do your best to try to look at the spot, even though you can't see it there as straight ahead of you and try not to move around, even though that wasn't really feasible. Uh, and then on top of that, I, you know, I get flashes in my eyes just in general with, with, <laughs> with my vision loss. So I'm like, was that a flash in a dome or was it not? And uh, so constantly clicking the button and stuff, but uh, yeah, it's it, there's definitely it was definitely primed for uh, for uh, improvements, I think. Um, but can you walk me through the mm. how this um, how this works for the, the project you're developing? How this works for a patient? So if I'm if I'm saying, "Hey Ben, uh, I'd like to be able to do this uh, visual field um, at home," um, how does this work?
1: Well, um, you you at present, what you would do is um, go see your doctor and ask them to send it home. We're, we're hoping it will be robust enough that we'll be able to send it just to patients directly um, in, the, in the not too distant future. But right now you would have it um, prescribed by your doctor and you might take the first test in their office and then they uh, would either send you home with an all-in-one mobile headset or um, you would order it from us. And um, then it comes in the mail and you put it on your head and it gives you a tutorial and away you go. Uh, and it shows little um, stimuli to the left eye or the right eye. You don't have to take it off and do the two eyes separately. You, you can take one test and get data on both eyes because the headset can show to the left or the right eye. And um, it presents spots at different locations um, in each eye and gives you a little map at the end saying um, how intense did the stimulus have to be. Now you, you can only, in typical tests, you can only show about four stimuli, these little spots at each location. And they are often about 54 locations per eye. So, you know, 108 locations tested during the test. And um, there's only time in, a, in one session for about four of those stimuli. But over the course of 10, you can get 40 stimuli at each location, and that's enough to really measure with quite a lot of precision how sensitive that part of the retina is that's seeing that part of the visual field. Do you mind if I ask you, Sean, um, you said you had vision loss. Um, was that? Did, did you say that earlier? Were you telling me that that was from retinitis pigmentosa, RP?
0: Yeah, so when you and I were talking before recording, exactly, it's from retinitis pigmentosa.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one that we would really like to develop um, a test for. The the test we have right now was developed primarily with glaucoma patients in mind. And um, there's about 2 million glaucoma patients, people with glaucoma who only have, uh, and only a million of them are under treatment. So there's a a million people losing vision in the United States from glaucoma who don't know it. And um, the ones who do, and have been, um, so there's, there's need for both screening and monitoring. Um, and one of the great things about some of these headsets is they go to a very dark background and that's what you would want um, to branch into retinitis pigmentosa um, as, a, as a visual field test. Um, you'd want to be able to um, show stimuli on a um, dark background And there there are a number of other diseases that cause loss of vision that you really want to have a unusual or different kind of visual field test. People have, um, they're either photosensitive so that they they become very sensitive to bright lights and and you wanna design the test. And and that's something we're so good at, right? We've done a lot of um, developing vision tests and, personalizing tests or, or modify, I should say modifying tests. And there's re- no reason not to have um, a different visual field test for every different medical condition that needs to be monitored, right? The person with macular degeneration needs a different test than a person with retinitis pigmentosa or glaucoma to really optimally use their test time and, and learn the most you can about their vision
0: you know you're the first person I ever heard say that but it makes a lot of sense right like that the visual field should be adapted for different uh, you know for people with different degenerative conditions or uh you know visual it's just it, it, it's just so logical but it's just the first person I've ever heard um highlight that so um maybe just one or two questions before we wrap up the uh okay the is obviously doing some pretty amazing things so where you know, what are some of the maybe current initiatives or current challenges that the company is, uh, undertaking or navigating?
1: Well, we are a startup. And so, um, there's always, um, a, uh, concern that we're going to do more than we can. Right. So we have to be very disciplined about what, what work we attempt to do. We're all very ambitious and, um, we can see there's such a great need for development and um so how to fund the company right right now that that's sort of a practical question is very different from when i had to ask um, when i was a professor you always had to fund your own research lab but the whole enterprise was was safe when you're at a university generally speaking and um so we're you know, we try to get things done very efficiently and use our money very well. Uh, James has raised about $7 million so far for the company. And um, we are safe for the near future. But we know that if none of our products make it to market successfully and find um, people to buy them, that we will go out of business. Like, you know, most startups fail within five years. So we're already sort of in the top uh, Five percent of startups. That point of view, we feel like we're a stable company. We have a, a really good track record, but um, we're still a small fish. And um, so we, we're we're going to raise money again. Um, we're going to use a, com- a, a organization called Smart Engine to do that later this summer. And, um, and we also talk to people who have these conditions. There's some people who have glaucoma or particular um, strabismus or amblyopia that really want the company to succeed, and they've been some of our best allies you know, because we're meeting a need. So, and I say one you know, one of the challenges is what's really frustrating is when you think you have a solution that would save um, many, many people vision, and you know maybe maybe thousands and thousands of person years of vision. And you go out and make a sales pitch, like you know, for example, to the NIH. Um, we've had grant proposals to the NIH, and um, they have a process that you have to follow. And if one of their reviewers, um, you'll get three reviews, and if one of their reviewers has a negative reaction for whatever reason, that will sink your proposal. And um, so there are there have been setbacks like that. But what really keeps us going is um, Every time we hear from a patient, and we hear from patients all the time, how um, you know, we, we get people who are seeing stereo for the first time, um, and uh, people who really like the visual field test, and uh, that keeps us connected and plugging away. And we really feel like, a, we're on the ra- on the road. We really do have a successful company at this point, and there's no reason why we won't succeed very well. Um, and B, none of us regrets the time we've spent on the project. So yeah,
0: fair, it, you know, it makes a lot of talking. Is mean, just a couple of things that come to my mind from past guests. So uh, one of my earliest episodes was with um, Dr. Natalia Vila, who is a um, a retina specialist um, in, based in Canada here. And um, I remember in the conversation, her and I were chatting about this about you know t- technologies that look very promising and you know, uh, it had a lot of potential to help a lot of patients and then the companies ran out of money. And it's just like, it's, it's a disheartening to see when that, that happens. And then, um, the second conversation, uh, was a more, uh, a podcast with, um, a more recent one with Dr. Robert Greenberg, who was the, uh, CEO of second Sight uh, medical products that made the Argus too. And he was highlighting as uh, so hopefully I don't get this wrong, but it was his, uh, uh, mentor um, Alfred Mann who had this top 10 list about the most important things about building out these uh, medical device companies and that you know number one two and three on the, on the list were capital 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 <laughs> so it's it's uh, um, it, it, it's uh, a struggle it's you know people listening to this and saying hey they're doing great they're you know this is this is amazing they don't necessarily see the struggle on the other side that in this case if it's James that's spearheading this on your side that they still need to continue you know drive in driving capital to uh, build this out and have the the markets success, success that um, it likely likely deserves right so um, what what are you most excited about right now with the company just to, as a final question is it is it the the perimeter tree product that you're working on or is it is it some other initiative there like what is uh, uh, what's most exciting to you
1: you know, it's really hard to choose. Um, we've got two things that are both really super exciting. I, I've talked about the Perimetry project already, but we also have this, um, what we're calling the Smart Assist product that um, I think is really gonna realize, well, it, it is, it's realizing the promise of VR for personalizing a person's treatment in a complex um, binocular field world. But, uh, you know, complex binocular vision disorders that people have, and it will help you along with your suppression if that's what you're having problems with, and it'll help you along with um, converging your eyes properly if that's what you're having problems with, and shepherd you along in your stereo vision if um, you're having difficulty seeing in depth. Um, And um, both of these seem really transformative to us. They're just um, really exciting. And um, I'm glad James is our CEO um, because he's, he does a great job of keeping the company afloat. Um, And, and uh, all of us would be, um, well, we're we're all, we feel really lucky to be in a place that has somebody who is skillfully navigating this. He's kind of a no nonsense guy. And um, he doesn't have a lot of flash, but when you talk to him, uh, it's just clear that he knows a lot and he knows what he's doing and the whole team is kind of like that so we feel up to these challenges even though they're very um, significant challenges getting uh, new products to market and you know it's not just getting it on the market it's you've got to get the marketing right you've got to introduce it to the right people you've got to get the data back in time you've got to set the prices um, to be both affordable and um, support the ongoing development. And um, so that's very real. We, we're aiming for low-cost products. That's our whole shtick is to, is to make tools that are available to lots more people and get treatments out there. And vision therapy is a great example because right now, um, one-on-one time with a highly trained, highly skilled uh, person who knows vision therapy, um, there just aren't enough vision therapists to treat everybody who needs to be treated, and there just there's so many school kids who they may not even realize why they're having more trouble reading than um, the other kids. It's it's, it's 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 like oh you know I know I'm just as smart as my fellow students or um, I can do so many things, but why can't I learn to read? And and it's really the, those conditions need to be diagnosed and treated to the extent that they can. Oh,
0: no, this, uh, this makes sense. I had this a conversation with, uh, so another former guest on the podcast, he's been on a couple episodes, it's Dr. Steve McIntosh, who's an optometrist. Um, he's told me, uh, just from, you know, personal experience and I won't dive into too much. So I don't, you know, butcher the information he's best to, to provide it, but, uh, just firsthand seeing how, um, even even kids kids struggling to learn in class who might otherwise be described with, with a learning disorder or with you know with ADHD that once they you know get a visual problem addressed if it's glasses or if it's amblyopia or whatever it may be all of a sudden those issues in school go away like it's 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 phenomenal and uh, it's often overlooked and uh, also I think it's it's certainly something that is uh, that people should be aware of so. Um, Ben, I want to, I want to, uh, maybe we we'll just wrap it up here. Cause I don't want to take your, too much of your time, but I, uh, I do want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Like this is, I, th- I think what you're doing is really interesting and, you know, you call your company a startup and I guess, you know, at the core it is, but it seems like you, you know, a startup with some pretty big wins already. Right. So, um, hopefully that will lead to a lot of, a lot of tailwinds and the, and the company is going to, uh. To flourish the way we all believe it will. So um, I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing the information uh, with the audience.
1: Well, thank you, Sean, and uh, thanks for your podcast that you guys are doing. Um, it's really great. It's really great that you're doing it. It's um, and I'm so glad that somebody is getting information out to people who want to have it. It's it's really a pleasure. I enjoyed talking with you.
0: Great. Thanks so much.